Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Welcome to Battle Walks, where we're walking in the footsteps of the soldiers who fought in the First and Second World War. And thank you for joining us for the second part of our series, Walking the Beaches of Anzac Cove at Gallipoli. It was great. If you haven't listened to last week, please go back and do that, because it won't make a lot of sense what we're talking about today if you don't hear the first instalment of this two-episode special. Uh, but it was really great. I really loved what we did last week, exploring the northern part of the sector at Gallipoli, where the Anzacs came ashore. And today we're going to do the southern part. And when I say we, joining me as always is Pete Smith. Pete, great to have you back. Hi, Matt. Yep, great to be here again. Now, wouldn't that strange time of the year, mate, when it's cold here and hot over there in France? How's it been? Have you had lots of sunny days to get out and walk the fields? Yep, we've got the inflatable pool up in the garden. And uh, walking the fields, it's not the ideal time. You need to be in the winter for that when the ploughing's taking place. So great for walking for doing a, a walks and wrecking the battlefield and having a wander through the edges of the woods, the ones that you can get into. and So, it's uh, yeah, it's a great time for doing that. If anything, slightly hot. We've uh, been up to uh, almost 30 uh, yesterday, day before yesterday. Today we've got a bit of rain, or we've had a little bit of rain. It's very humid at the moment, but uh, nice weather. Nice weather to be out and about. Well, excellent. I'm looking forward to hearing some more of those amazing walks that you do across the battlefields where you take your recorder and head out and actually do it live we've got a few more of those coming up and i really enjoy those i'm looking forward to hearing them again very jealous that i'm not there with you walking the fields this is the time of year when we'd be normally together when i'd be over there and you'd be there and we'd leading groups and catching up for a beer in Ypres, and it's it's crazy that we're stuck in our homes still i'm starting to dream about having a beer in Ypres. <laughs> hopefully soon mate you, you'll be there a lot sooner than i will be but uh yeah. the, the frothy beer i'm sure will be waiting for you and uh pete's <laughs> pete's chair will be set up in the, the in the bar next to the yeah. menon gate and uh, i'm it sure will. it'll be good to be back there 
It will. It's going to be extended. It's uh, it's it's got a lot bigger since uh, last time we were there. They bought the shop next door, which is very sad because that was a little military shop that was next door. That's that's gone, and the the bars extended. So it'd be interesting to see what they've done with it. It's one thing Epa needs more of is more bars. So I'm glad to see that that's uh, <laughs> that that's happening for people that haven't gone. Sorry, Pete and I've wandered off a little bit of a private conversation here, but the town of Ypres is just amazing and. Um, Walking around those streets, soaking up the military history, and then ending your day with a steak and chips or a or a pot of Flemish stew or the mussels in white wine, amazing. And of course, many cold beers. It's a it's a wonderful place to be. It's really good. And I know Pete, you're desperate to get back up there, so hopefully it won't be long. There's a fantastic range of beers as well, which uh, which is good. <laughs> we're not in uh, Belgium today for today's podcast, of course. We're not even in France. We're we're back to Gallipoli, as we said, doing the southern sector of the Anzac landing beaches. And I think it's really interesting, Pete, that we had to even split this into two episodes. There's just so much to talk about. The area we covered in last week's podcast was, I would say, less than two kilometres we would have walked. That's the thing about Gallipoli, particularly the Anzac sector. Because they didn't succeed, because they didn't push very far inland, because all they established was a beachhead, it's a tiny area. The the area is minuscule. It's the one thing that strikes people. They go, how did 50,000 men live and fight in this tiny space for nine months it's just it's ridiculous isn't it oh it's, it's fascinating because obviously we can't walk in all of the places where they were because the uh, uh the rather spiky bushes what are those bushes i have no idea anyway very thorny bushes that you can't get through so you can't push spiky into the is a good description spiky spiky <laughs> painful you, so you can't uh, get into a lot of the places where the men actually were unless that you've had a fire or they've done some clearances which they have been doing just recently but it's uh so we're a bit limited in what into where we can actually walk unless you're willing to push your way through which we normally have a crack at but it's absolutely fascinating and it is very difficult to, uh, to to really to believe that so many men were packed into such a small area and so overlooked. Uh, I think that's the thing that oh, I always find fascinating is that they were so overlooked by the Turks once they got uh, once they realised that they were not going to move inland and they were just trapped on those on those beaches. And as we said, last week's podcast is a great demonstration of the fact that every square centimetre of soil at Gallipoli has a dozen stories associated with it. Everywhere you turn. And I would love to have been back there 50 years ago with veterans and just hear their stories because every inch of that oh, yeah. ground has just... And it's not just it's not just an event occurred there, but so many events throughout the campaign occurred in each spot. It's really quite remarkable. And we're going to continue that journey today by looking at this, the, the, the southern half of the sector. It's really quite special what we did last week, wasn't it, Pete, when you talk about North Beach, obviously Anzac Cove, Aribunu, Aribunu Cemetery. It's, it's just a very special area. Uh, yeah, it's it's extraordinary. It's because it's it's all battlefield. Uh, you know, we, when we're here on the Western Front, we can walk behind the lines. Well, there is no behind the lines here, really. The, the, the behind the lines is on board a ship or or, or back in, back in Malta or on one of the the Greek islands. So it's it's just extraordinary. If you're on the land, then you are in the front line. Uh, there's there's no second line. It's all the front line almost. It must have been. Imagine what it was like in terms of the stress levels, in terms of the tension for the men, never getting a break. At least in France, they do a week in the front line, then they go back to some cosy billet behind the lines where they'd get a bath and some hot food and you know a glass of white wine if they were lucky in the local estaminet. Imagine what it was like being at Gallipoli and just constantly under fire, even when you were in the reserve area, even when you weren't fighting. Yeah. The risk of a, a, a stray bullet or a shell coming over was always top of your mind. Just extraordinary, the, the tension the men were under for the whole nine months of the campaign. 
Yeah, no day off. It was one of the things we forget on the Western Front, that the men had local leave. So very often, if they, when they were pulled out the line behind the lines, training programmes organised, but there were always times you could get away. So, yeah, I think it's extraordinary that there was no getting away. There, there was no rest, and, and the heat, uh, or the cold, and the food, or the lack of it, it was constant. There was no getting away from it. So, yeah, a, 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 a very unusual, I suppose, battlefield in that sense, that there is no way you can get away from 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 the the physicality of it the smell just just imagine the smell would have been there all the time no matter where you were it's often been said that new arrivals at gallipoli could smell it before they could see it just the combination of corpses and human waste and rotting food and it just was a an absolute hell on earth but again read peter hart's book the gallipoli evacuation to get an insight into exactly what was going on in gallipoli the book is good because it not it doesn't just talk about the evacuation it talks about the situation at gallipoli later in the campaign when the big offences have died away and when everyone realised that not much was happening and really just dug in and got on with life, that's when Gallipoli became a real ordeal, when you just mm. felt stuck there. And and I, one of the things I noted in my research was that um, the, the rates of sickness and men reporting to medical aid posts really skyrocketed late in the campaign. And that wasn't because the men were any sicker or getting wounded more often. It was simply that they were getting disillusioned with the whole thing. And so they were they were seeking treatment for maladies that earlier in the campaign they would have just put up with and, and gotten on with the job. But late in the campaign, mm. the rates of medical treatment really started to skyrocket as the men became disillusioned with the campaign. We can't spell out enough what a physical and a mental ordeal this was for the poor blokes that were there. Well, many men became so ill that they actually were discharged back to Australia. I found it, found it fascinating that it was a place, and that doesn't really happen on the Western Front. Illness is something that uh, is not going to be too serious. I mean, obviously there are variations, but I mean, the illnesses, trench foot, things like that, you will eventually recover for, uh, from them, or not as the case may be with trench foot, but, but there is a chance of recovery. But there were an awful lot of men that became so ill with uh, enteric fever and various stomach bugs and, and ongoing diarrhoea that they, that they needed a, a, a real period of rest. And yeah, so yeah, f- fairly gruesome time, uh, uh, very hard work on your body, I think, uh, no matter what, even without being uh, wounded. You can see why for the rest of the war that the men wore the little A on their colour patch. Uh, so they wore a colour patch on their shoulder indicating which battalion they were a part of. And on that, if they'd served at Gallipoli, they wore a little A on top of that colour patch showing that they were an original Anzac. And so, as we touched on last week, when, when the veterans mentioned the word Anzac, they were usually referring to Gallipoli itself, so people, so the, the campaign, the Gallipoli campaign. And an Anzac, in terms of an individual, was a person who had enlisted early in the war and had served at Gallipoli. So we, we shouldn't forget that either. Is this, this idea of the reverence for Gallipoli in Australia and New Zealand began during the war. By 1916, new recruits who were arriving in France were quite in awe of the veterans who'd served at Gallipoli. It's just, it's an extraordinary thing, Pete, how how that connection with Gallipoli was so dominant throughout the entire war. Well, I remember many, many years ago myself wondering, I wonder when first Anzac Day was? When did Anzac Day actually start? And it started in 1916. It started the following year. So it was something that was already high in the consciousness of Australia right the way from, uh, from the, the, the year after, the year after the campaign. I think it's great. We often, in Australia, when I do interviews and when I'm asked about it, I often say it's great the Western Front has received the dues that it's deserving of, which is very true. I'm glad the focus has shifted to the Western mm. Front and it's yeah. not just all about Gallipoli. 
Um, but in a, in, a, in a very important way, when we remember what went on at Gallipoli, we are continuing that tradition that began during the war. So I think it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful place to visit. It's just a wonderful part of Australia's history. I, I agree entirely. Uh, and I, I, I'm very pleased, obviously, for the reason the Dam died on the Western Front and uh, uh, taken off a lot of Australians around the battlefields. But but I'm glad that I described it, or I used to describe it, as the eye of Australia had moved. It, it's moved onto the Western Front. And I think it was about time it, it needed to move onto the Western Front. And it really starts just before the 90th anniversaries of the, of the fighting here. And now uh, it's well understood that this was a a much more important place uh, for for Australians, really, I, I, I think. It's just that Anzac holds, holds your attention because it's the coming of age of Australia and all of those other things that are attached to it. But this is where Australia really came of age, uh, certainly as a fighting force is on the Western Front. Well, there's still lots of really important things for us to see in our walk, so shall we begin walking, Pete, and exploring the southern sector? We of shall. The Anzac sector? It's a really yeah. amazing area, as I, as I said from last week. You can see just the, the huge number of sites there are to see here, and, uh, and this walk will um, will carry that on. So, as you recall, we ended last week. We just scrambled up and down the the, the, the little knoll of Araburnu that overlooks the northern end of Anzac Cove. This was the first heights uh, scaled by the Aussies when they landed at 4:30 a.m. on the 25th of April, 1915. So we've just scrambled up and back down again. So now we're back on the road in front of Araburnu overlooking Anzac Cove. And we're going we're gonna to turn left now as we've come back off the hill, so facing south. And we're going to walk the full length of Anzac Cove on the road above the cove. As we said last week, you can't walk along. There's, there's no access to the southern end of Anzac Cove. So if you were to walk along the beach, you would find yourself a bit stuck at the, at the foot of a cliff at the far end. So don't walk along the beach. We're going to walk along the road uh, over the top of the beach. Um, but it's good because it gives us a good perspective, Pete, out looking over the cove out over the water where, where so much went on uh, during the entire campaign. As we uh, touched upon uh, last week, it's a great shame that this road is here in a way that we can't walk along the beach and get that feel of what it was really like to be on the beach. Um, but I do like to think that the that the road is at least stopping more erosion. That's so long as the road remains. Of course, we can see as we walk along the road that it's actually being damaged by uh, by the sea and also by uh, slides on the on the cliff face. So it's a uh, it's a problem, and it needs to be kept in. Since it's here, it now needs to be kept in good condition. Yeah, the one shame is the cliff face. Now that, as we said last week, when they construct when they widened the road, they uh, they bulldozed a big chunk out of the cliff face, and that 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 is the difficulty because not just from an erosion perspective, but also it means you can't get a perspective of what the slopes above the beach used to be like. We should mention as well the road was built during the campaign. This was an ANZAC uh, yeah. construction during the campaign. This is where mules and men would walk to get from one end of the cove to the other above the uh, above the beach, uh, and it was improved after the war. And if you've been to the War Memorial in Canberra, one of the key, one of the most important exhibits and the first thing everyone sees when they walk into the War Memorial in the entry hall is the boat, the, the, the lifeboat from a British ship that was on the beach, was rowed in originally on, on the original Anzac Day and is now pockmarked with bullet holes and this, this white timber, quite large um, rowboat from, a, from a, a, a ship, a British ship. And the fascinating thing about that is that it was the, the bullet holes don't come from the landing. This 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 lighter was left on the beach for the entire campaign, uh, and so no doubt picked up these bullet and shrapnel holes during the the incessant firing of of shells and bullets at the beach. So the bullet holes probably don't come from the landing because, as we said last week, the landing was pretty much unopposed. 
Um, but interestingly, that boat, when Charles Bean returned to Gallipoli in 1918 and early 1919 and found the boat on the beach and decided this should be the, the focal point of a memorial back in Australia, they had to get it away from Anzac Cove. And the road that you're now standing on was so narrow and such a goat track, they couldn't carry the boat down the, uh, down the track. They actually had to cut the boat in half to get it along that goat track uh, and then reassemble it when it was brought back to Australia. So there always was a road here, but it was a much more of a goat track. And in fact, later on around Hell Spit, there is still the remains of the original road, which are crumbling so badly now that you can't walk on it. But the, there's a tiny little part of the original track that is still there at Hell Spit. But, um, but just bear that in mind as you walk along this road that um, the, the basis of the road that is there now was actually constructed by the Anzacs. So you are walking in their footsteps. Of course, the roadworks have changed it a lot. But had you been walking along here in 1915 during the campaign and you'd look to your left, so the sea is on your right, if you'd look to your left, the whole slope above you, the gullies and the... The, the tumbling down washaways and, and, and any little nook and cranny in this complicated, mad landscape would have had troops in it. Bivouacs, dugouts, hospitals, stores, um, ammunition dumps, supply dumps. There would have been mules going backwards and forwards, little fires burning at night. This would have been an absolute hive of activity. And I love, whenever you look at a map, Pete, you just see that the, um, you know, the, the spirit of the Anzacs coming through, they named all of these gullies um, to reflect facets of life at Gallipoli. So Shrapnel Gully is the main one, which we'll come to shortly. But there was Bully Beef Gully. There was Howitzer Gully. Uh, every little gully had a name which reflected life that was going on. And that's the point. That the time in the front lines was actually the, the smallest part of the time the troops spent at Gallipoli. The majority of their time, they were in these dugouts, in their bivouacs, in their tents, and their little scrapes and, and, and dugouts behind the line in areas just like this. It's It's... It's an area that people overlook, Pete, when they just drive past on their way from you know, one end of Anzac Cove to the other. But this was the home for an army for the best part of a year. It's uh, When you stand on the road looking up and you try to imagine it, it's very difficult to imagine. But uh, that description is very good. It was dugouts on top of dugouts on top of dugouts because as, as the slope rose, the little little almost uh, tracks, tiny tiny goat tracks running backwards and forwards and then men dug into the bank of course that's the easiest way just straight into the bank and and if you had a few sandbags put a few sandbags around the entrance and a, a, a bit of wriggly tin if you could find it or more likely some old packing boxes filled with stones uh, some old ammunition boxes and uh, yeah you try to make make yourself a little comfy comfy home and ten, 10 to 1 when you went up to the front line and you came back somebody else had pinched it so you had to start again and make another one so it was just this rabbit warren almost literally a rabbit warren full of uh, of men that uh, and, I, and I always like to imagine from the boats of course you could light the fires here inside your little dugout because they couldn't be seen from further up uh, and the, the smoke dispersed fairly fairly quickly but if you were out at sea looking in you must have seen all these little twinkling fires all over the, the side of the hillsides just an extraordinary uh, extraordinary view I think in things like um, the old miniseries Anzacs they depicted it quite well in even in Gallipoli in the, the movie the 81 film that Peter Weir made they depict that life on the slopes um, very, very well. And, you know, again, that's what we remember about Gallipoli is the holding on. We don't remember triumphant charges and capturing large chunks of land. We remember just hanging on. And there's no more hanging on than being a soldier dug into yeah. these slopes. They're literally hanging on by the skin of their teeth and um, really quite extraordinary. One of the things I always think about when I walk around this area too, Pete, is I think about what it must have looked like from the water. But I also think about in the early weeks of the campaign, what it must have looked like looking out to sea and seeing all the ships of the British fleet and the, mm. the activity as ships came in and out. But 
all of that changed quite significantly on the 25th of May when a terrible incident occurred and it was shocking. It's reported in so many diaries and accounts that the, the big British warships were, were, were off the coast, were off Anzac Cove and providing support, fire and blasting away at the Turks. Um, one of those ships was the HMS Triumph uh, and uh, while the troops would have been shocked in the middle of the day to just watch her bobbing around in the water, firing her guns, doing what she was doing when all of a sudden there was an explosion and she lurched to starboard and then sank in about 40 minutes. The Germans had uh, sent a submarine in there. And um, they were, I'm always surprised by how effective German submarines were in and around Gallipoli. And um, Triumph sank in, uh, as I said, in 40 minutes. Um, most of the men were able to get off because the water was so shallow. It's only 55 metres deep. So most of the men were able to get off. But 78 sailors were drowned. And um, that ship still remains there, as do half a dozen of these huge warships. Gallipoli is actually a really great dive site that people go to and, and fairly recently began diving on these big, these big ships. But it's part of the campaign we don't really think about. We don't think about the naval aspects as much as we should. And we certainly don't think about German submarines sinking British warships in these shallow inland waters off the coast. No, I think it's, uh, it must have been a shock to the men to, to actually watch the action taking place, to watch this ship, the explosion, and then it's slowly rolling over and, uh, and sinking. But of course, for most of them, they would equally be aware that they're losing their artillery effectively because the ships wear their artillery support. So, so the ships that were not sunk all withdrew. So they're losing their immediate fire support from the ocean uh, after the sinking of, uh, of those, uh, those warships. It reminds me a similar one is the uh, is what happened in Guadalcanal during the opening days of the Guadalcanal campaign when the Americans all came ashore and did quite well against the the Japanese when they first landed on Guadalcanal. But there was a bit, very big naval battle, the Battle of Savo Island, and after that the the American Navy got a bit of a got a bit of a thumping, as did the Australian Navy that was there too. We lo- that was when we lost the Canberra was sunk in that uh, in that engagement. And the Navy decided it was just too dangerous to hang around. And so the Marines, the Marines on Guadalcanal woke up one morning to discover the entire Navy that was protecting them had disappeared. Exactly the same at Gallipoli. The, the, imagine the troops yeah. up on those slopes watching the Navy sail away. The Navy that had brought them there, the Navy that had supported them. You know, the big brother that was always there to look after them, sailing off to distant islands because it was too unsafe. The, the isolation and the desertion, would have been, the, the feelings you would have had would have been absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah. And all of that took place from these slopes. I always think of that when I uh, when I walk along this stretch. It also meant that their medical uh, uh, support was further away as well, because some of those ships that left uh, had been used for medical support for the wounded. So that it also meant that their their medical support was not as close as it had been. We're going to continue walking along the road, Pete. We're heading south again. We're going to walk the full length of Anzac Cove, and there, you know you could look down on the cove and try and remember. There's no, there's nothing left from the campaign except for a couple of concrete slabs which were the the uh, the foundations for a water purification plant which was built fairly late in the campaign so as you can imagine the the army that lived on the slopes above you and on the beach at Anzac Cove was transitory it was it was flimsy wooden piers it was boxes of cargo and supplies and when they left they either destroyed it or left it for the turks um, or took it with them, and today there's there's nothing left. So it's incredible that for, for again for the best part of a year this army could live and support itself, and then as soon as they left, they took everything with them, and within a period of weeks the whole place was was deserted. Really quite extraordinary. You can still see the foundations of the piers going out um, on a clear day. You can uh, look into the water and just see the, the the remains of the piers 
snaking out, particularly from the higher ground that we're going to get to later on. But um, extraordinary, Pete, that an entire army could function, operate and live here and then within a matter of weeks could just disappear into the night. Yeah, it is. And, and of course, with the Turks being poor as well and a lot of poor people living in the area who, who came back, um, they salvaged anything that could be salvaged. And so anything that was left is going to be used uh, and taken away as well. So, in fact, within, within no doubt, months of the evacuation, almost everything had gone. Everything that could have been used has, has been used uh, and has been removed. I like it in a lot of ways that it's, it's, it's now deserted. It's now just a beach and you do have to use your imagination. It's, 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 an, it's an amazing thing. And usually when you go there, if you go there outside of Anzac Day, you will be on your own. There won't be any other visitors there. You'll be standing on Anzac Cove yeah. with the ghosts of 50,000 men and looking around and you've just yeah. got the place yourself. There's virtually not a trace left. And it's, uh, I, I, I don't know what philosophically it says, but it's a, it's, a remarkable, uh, it's a remarkable feeling to visit Gallipoli and have the place to yourself when you know that yeah. during the campaign it was just such a hive of activity. If you're an art historian, photographer, it's it's an absolute paradise because the the views are fantastic. As soon as you start climbing the bluffs and climbing the ridges, the views become uh, immediate. So you have beautiful views you can take photographs of, and it's very easy to imagine what it was like when there were lots of people here because there's nothing to impinge you, no no buildings, no houses. It is the landscape is exactly the same. So I think it's a fantastic place to use your imagination. It's um, we're going to keep walking now along Anzac Cove and as we get to the southern end of the cove we're going to come to a little white monument which simply marks the name Anzac Cove and it's got it in both English uh, says Anzac Cove and also in Turkish Anzac Koyu in Turkish and it's at the southern end and this is a good spot everyone stops here and gets a photo but it's also probably the best spot to get a perspective on looking back across Anzac Cove because even though you're up on high ground above the beach you're still tucked in behind the slopes and so this was actually a spot where photographers during the war took those famous photos of Anzac Cove so it, it is a good spot to get as close as you can to it then and now comparison but it's got the little white marker stone um, I'm announcing that this is Anzac Cove and that was put there in 1985 um, the the cove was put there because it as we said in last week's episode it was known mostly just as the beach to the troops and it was General Birdwood who, who the commander of the Australians and New Zealanders who said that it should be called Anzac Cove um, but even after the campaign, it was never uh, it was never officially known as that until 1985, and then it was just it was just it's such an insignificant little piece of of geography that it never even had an official name. In in even the Turks only referred to it as Ari Bernu, which is actually the northern uh, the northern point. So in 85 they renamed it Anzac Cove. But I thought Pete, we might just talk about the uh, the the description of uh, of General Birdwood and why he wanted to name it Anzac Cove. So this is what uh, this is what Charles Bean had to say within days of the landing, the description of what you would have seen from this point in 1915. General Birdwood asked that the beach between the two knolls being the original landing place should be known as Anzac Cove and the name Anzac, till then the code name of the Army Corps, was gradually applied to the whole area. Day and night the cove was full of the noises and sights of a great harbour. Launches with toes moving constantly in and out, the shrill whistles of small crafts, the hoots of trawlers, the rattle of anchor chains, the hiss of escaping steam. At either end of the beach was the hospital, the New Zealand station at the north end, the Australian at the south. Colonels Howes and Giblin would not display the Red Cross on their station, crouched as it was among supply depots, which the Turks might justifiably shell. Along the middle of the beach were long lines of picketed mules. Even by day, the strand between the growing supply stacks and the water was a crowded thoroughfare. Odd men, parties, strings of animals jostled through it, lucky if they had escaped the kick of a mule. During shell fire, the casual hands would quickly disappear behind stacks of biscuit boxes, but the working parties carried on 
without regarding it. And the other thing, of course, is swimming in the cove. There were always men swimming naked in the waters of the cove, just getting a break from the heat. And just a, that, that was probably the only good bit about serving at Gallipoli was at the end of a long, hot day, you could go down and, and have a cooling dip in the ocean. But just again, standing at this spot, Pete, trying to imagine what that was like. Absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. I, I think there's actually uh, a photograph, isn't there, of Bedwood having a swim? I think off the uh, off the cove, if I remember rightly. There is indeed stark naked swimming off the cove, That's and it was right. distributed uh, in Australia, and it was everyone was quite shocked. It was not widely <laughs> distributed by the newspapers because they couldn't believe that their loyal commander was uh, having a dip in the nutty. So uh, really, yeah. quite extraordinary. The sensibilities in Australia compared to what was going on back at Gallipoli. I think we should do a, a podcast about Bedwood. I think he's uh, one of the forgotten commanders uh, from the Australian perspective because he's so uh, overshadowed, I suppose, by Monash eventually. Uh, but I think it was an interesting chap, was Bedwood. I agree entirely. He was British, but um, he was uh, his heart rested with the Australians and New Zealanders that he uh, that he commanded during the war. I think he actually applied, didn't he? Apply to become Governor General of Australia. He did. He certainly lived in Australia for a period after the war. I think uh, if he wasn't Governor General, he was certainly living in Australia. And uh, fairly recently, within the last 10 years, his grave, which was getting into a bad state of disrepair, uh, back in the UK, he died and was buried in the UK. And I'm not sure where, he, where he's buried, actually, but wherever it is, the Australian government paid for his grave to be, uh, to be renovated. Another thing I'd say to every listener is jump on Google Maps or get a street directory out and I guarantee that within a couple of kilometres of where you are currently sitting anywhere in Australia, there will be a Birdwood Avenue or a Birdwood Street or a Birdwood Park. He was revered in Australia. So if you see that Birdwood, you see it so many times, it's, 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 a, it's, not, a, it's, not, a, it's not a reference to bird watching. It's a, it's a reference to the, to the great general from the First World War. So, um, so that's um, yeah, his decision to, uh, to name it Anzac Cove. Um, but known always to the to the troops, just as the beach. So we're going to continue on now, uh, just past the uh, just past the mo- monument. We should also say that the beach directly below where this monument is, Pete, was where the third field ambulance dressing station was. Um, again, Charles Bean mentioned in that quote that the, the Australian hospital was nearby. Well, the third field ambulance had their dressing station here, and why is that significant to us? It's significant because of the probably the most famous Australian hero who we will talk about in a little bit more detail coming up, John Simpson, the man with his donkey. It was from here that he left with his donkeys and headed up the up Shrapnel Gully. Um, of course, you can't do it today because the slope, as we've previously mentioned, restricts access from the beach, but the third field ambulance was right below where you're now standing, and this is where Simpson um, left and, and indeed brought back wounded men on the donkeys, so it's an important little corner of the cove. We'll talk a bit more about Simpson as we go along. Was his donkey actually a donkey, or was it a mule? I think it was probably a mule, wasn't it? I know he's always called a donkey, but uh, uh, was it, were, were they using mules or were they using donkeys? That I, is a question. I, I, well, it's good. I'm, I'm no vet, but I think it was a donkey because the photos, they're quite small. Yeah. They're very small, and mules are yeah. large. Obviously, a mule being a donkey and yeah. a horse mated together. Yeah. Um, mules are always quite large and good animals, but I, I think it probably was a donkey because it was very donkey. small with the long yeah. ears. So from what I've yeah. seen, it's a good question. Um, anyone listening who knows a little bit more about animal services than we do, there were definitely donkeys and mules there. <laughs> yeah, um, they were. But, uh, yeah, I think I think yeah. I think Duffy uh, was a donkey. But um, may, someone may please send us a, a message on Twitter or Facebook if you have more information about the yeah. uh, the, the species of uh, animal he used. But we'll talk more about Simpson as we yeah. as we go on a little bit further. But um, it, I think let, let's talk a little bit since I've touched on this, Pete. Medical conditions at Gallipoli, like this, was a key yeah. part of the whole story and. As I've said many times before, the great Peter Hart, the work I've done with him on Gallipoli, because he is the absolute expert on Gallipoli, talks a lot about the medical 
conditions. And his, I mean, his famous expression he's used many times is the flies that spread the dysentery at Gallipoli. He said flies have two favourite two favourite meals: shit and jam. And so they would fly from one to the other and spread the two uh, you know, to the humans that came in contact with them. Yeah. We cannot Look state it. enough. We cannot state enough. And, you know, jokes aside, the misery of the medical situation at Gallipoli, everyone had dysentery. Um, I think it was Monash that said if he ever did a solid bowel movement again, he'd think he was in the family way, considering that, that just, the, <laughs> the, the, just the state. And we shouldn't laugh. This is more than just having... You know, a crook tummy. Oh, yeah. We've all we've all had diarrhea. Yeah. We've all had traveller's tummy. This is so much more. And again, read read the work done by Peter Hart on Gallipoli and the account um, that that he gave from um, from one of his veterans about losing a friend who they were all so weak from dysentery they carried their friend to latrine. He toppled over and drowned in the muck of the latrine because they were just too weak to pull him out. They were all so weak from dysentery. This is just the most horrific way. And you think then, Pete. They're all in this condition. There's bloated corpses everywhere. There's flies. There's dysentery. And then they've got to fight. It's not just they've got to live and survive and basically they're out camping for nine months. They've then got to grab kit and rifle and go and charge the enemy. How how would you fight in that condition? Well, I think this is uh, when, when the character uh, of men really came to the fore because that's how you survive uh, in these kind of conditions. You've got to have that extra bit of something about you. Uh, because if you haven't, then you'll you'll give up. In these kind of conditions, if you've got dysentery and you can't eat properly, then effectively you're going to die. And that you have to keep on eating and drinking, you, even though you know it's going to go straight through you, because at least something, you're taking some kind of goodness from it. Um, and you've got to get yourself down to the medical aid post, and hopefully they will give you something. Or if, if anything else, they'll just give you a, a stretcher to let, rest on for the day, and then back to the expect to go back to the front again once you've uh, you, you've rested a while. Because that's sometimes all that is needed is just a, a half a day away from from the, the the front line where you can think about nothing and just lie down and try and get some proper sleep and and drink an awful lot and so it, so it, it, it's really down to your mental outlook that is go, is going to keep you uh, in a condition where you can fight if you have to but it must have been just hell when you well we all know what it's like when you don't feel very well and you still have to go to work and you still have to do something it's it's not fun um, and so if you can imagine these guys with various aspects of stomach problems. If, even if they haven't got actual dysentery, you know, with bloated bowels and, and just feeling uncomfortable and ill and not able to eat. And let's face it, what they were eating was not good. It's all going to be tinned food. And, and as we discussed, if you can get it into your mouth before the flies get to it, then you're doing, you're doing well. And then you've got the heat and the cold in the evenings as well, so a mixture. So all designed just to make you feel unwell. And just simple things like flu and and, uh, and colds would be completely out of proportion to what they would not normally be because of uh, of, the, of the conditions. Uh, yeah, just, just terrible. It's Peter Hart, in a number of interviews I've done with him, <clears throat> because he was the oral historian at the Imperial War Museum for many years and interviewed dozens of Gallipoli veterans. And he makes the very important point that we only know what dysentery was like at Gallipoli because of oral history interviews, because men did not write it in their letters home. They didn't write it in their diary. They're not going to write, sit up and write in their diary, oh, I had a terrible day and went to the toilet 20 times today. Mm. They're not going to put that in their diary. They're certainly not going to write that to their wife or girlfriend or mother at home to explain what it was like. Mm. The only way we know about it is by the good work done by historians like Peter Hart, who sat these veterans down years later and said, tell me about dysentery. What was it like being that ill at Gallipoli? And that's how we have these stories. And it's, 
it's just remarkable because this is the important stuff we need to know. We, we would never know how debilitating that is uh, unless that good work was done. So um, read Peter Hart's books, listen to his podcasts. Absolutely extraordinary, the work he did with Gallipoli Veterans. But rem- in places like where we're standing now, looking out at, the, at Anzac Cove, nice and peaceful, we're standing right near the hospital and we should think about just the, the, the ordeal that Gallipoli was on the men. We just, we just can't believe it. Absolutely extraordinary. I sometimes use the comparison of, of Agincourt. I know it's a strange comparison, but a lot of the English army at Agincourt, so we're talking about a medieval battle here, and the archers had very bad dysentery. They'd had it for some considerable time, to the extent where where they were making a mess almost constantly, and so they removed the, the lower garments. So during the fighting at Agincourt, a lot of the archers had no lower garments on so that they could continue fighting while they had this terrible dysentery. And so it's a similar thing, really. You, know, you can imagine these guys would have been making a terrible mess while still expected to fight and just horrendous. It just doesn't bear thinking about, really. Just absolutely horrific, isn't it? Um, I should also mention that the, the, the track that I was talking about, this is where you can see it, just behind the, the memorial is the remains of the original track that stretched all the way along the cove. So, again, Doug not dug but created by the Anzacs during the campaign still there after the campaign then expanded to to make the road that you've just been uh, that you've just been walking on this uh the the knoll of uh, land that sticks out at the southern end of Anzac Cove is known as Queensland Point because the Queenslanders were the first men ashore and it's you know Queenslanders are normally quite humble unlike them to uh, name <laughs> something after themselves <laughs> but no good on good on our friends from Queensland the first people ashore were Queenslanders and they they're very proud of that point um, and so what we're going to do now is we're going to leave the, leave the monument and we're going to uh, walk down the road a little bit further and then to the right there's a clearing, there's a bit of a track and a clearing up on a little hill to the right and we're going to walk up there and there's a Turkish memorial there to the, to the, uh, to the men who first defended Anzac Cove. So this was the 8th company of the 27th Regiment that, that faced the Anzacs when they first landed. So as we said it wasn't even a full company, a half company of Turks. And uh, the description in Turkish says, A platoon from the 8th Company of the 27th Infantry Regiment faced the first 1,500-man wave on the Anzac Force, which landed on the shore near Aribanu in the early hours of 25th April 1915, and caused them great casualties, forcing them back to the steep slopes above the beach. Um, it's, not, it's not quite an accurate representation of what went on, but it's, it's good that there's a monument there uh, just remembering what those, uh, what those men did, because an extraordinary achievement. As we said, less than 150 men. So the 1,500 men in the first wave, that was literally the first wave that landed, but 4,000 men landed in the first hour. And so for 150 men to face them was quite an extraordinary achievement. Most of those men fled. They, they you know, well, valour is, is um, you know, discretion is the better part of valour. They uh, fled back into safe areas, but a number of them stayed and fought on and were killed at their posts trying to stop the Anzacs from landing. So a, a good spot to remember them. Um, it's interesting, these memorials, Pete, isn't it? They're, they're, they're very large, these Turkish memorials. The Turks were actually quite late to the party in terms of putting memorials up around Gallipoli. These, most of these were put up in the 80s. Uh, but it's good that they're redressing the, the balance now that it was. It used to be nothing but Anzac memorials all over this sector and it was like the Turks weren't even there. Uh, it's good to see now that there's, uh, there's more memorials to the Turks coming up all over the place. Yeah, I, I like to see it because it's nice to get that juxtaposition uh, of... Uh, 
of uh, memorials and, and cemeteries. Um, sadly, the Turkish cemeteries, I don't know if we're going to talk about them during this podcast, but they're, they're difficult. They're not always quite what they, they seem. Um, but there's a lot of work being done. So there's archaeological work being done as well. So hopefully we'll see some more the good memorials and the interesting uh, uh, panels describing what was going on from a Turkish perspective. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it gives them a, a balanced view. Well, we talked about this when we did our Second Ridge podcast, one of the first walks mm. that we did in this series. So go back and listen to yeah. that one. I think second or third walk that we did, but that was along Second Ridge in Gallipoli. And we talked about the Turkish cemeteries and the sort of odd situation yeah. where the Turks were buried in mass graves, which from, since the campaign have been unmarked. But the Turks in the 80s and 90s began building um, artificial cemeteries, which had headstones, but no bodies beneath the headstones. Um, yet the mass graves remained unmarked. Well, that's been redressed in recent years. It has. And the yeah. mass graves are now marked uh, appropriately as well. So it's, it's very good to see. But no, the Turkish memorials are, are fascinating, well worth going to. They're, they're always written in Turkish, yeah. obviously, but um, also with an English translation. So well worth going to. And this is one. And we should remember the that company that uh, that defended the beaches, yeah. in, uh, which, which was an incredibly brave thing to do in the early days, of the early hours of the entire Gallipoli campaign. If we stand next to this memorial, Pete, and we look inland, we're looking straight into the famous Shrapnel Gully. And now, again, quirks of geography that led to the Anzacs being able to survive in this area. Had it just been a bare slope leading up to the ridges, there was no way the Anzacs would have been able to hang on for more than a few hours because they would have been forced off by the Turks. But again, through a fluke of geography, there were these little ridges and washaways and gullies, which actually led all the way up to what would become the front line. So from the beach up to the second ridge, which was the front line, and again, go back and listen to our other podcast to hear all about second ridge. But between the beach at Anzac Cove and second ridge was this series of gullies, which gave protection to troops. And it was actually a very, very busy thoroughfare, Shrapnel Valley leading up. Uh, Shrapnel Valley, as it was known to the British, Shrapnel Gully, known to the Anzacs. But Shrapnel Gully led to Monash Valley, named after uh, Colonel Monash, who commanded the, um, the, the, some of the Australians, and led all the way to the front line. So had it not been for these gullies and, and, and little protected niches, the Anzacs would never have been able to make it from the beach to the front line. I, 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 it's interesting, isn't it? It's all, uh, it doesn't really make any difference. But to my mind, Shrapnel Valley is a better description uh, of, of Shrapnel Gully. A gully, to my mind, is something that's steep and, and very narrow, whereas whereas Shrapnel Gully Stroke Valley is actually is a valley. It's quite a wide expanse, uh, relatively speaking, for, for this area. Some of the gullies are literally just grooves in the ground almost, just like a trench. Uh, but uh, Shrapnel uh, Valley or Shrapnel Gully is wide. It's a wide expanse. It's going to be wide enough to put a cemetery in there. It was wide enough to have supplies stored there and also for men to to walk up and down uh, in uh, in a three or four five abreast. So it's it's a it's a it's a big uh, a big valley, a big gully in an area of very narrow gullies. This is a fantastic spot to imagine what that was like because it's really important again when we. When we, we need to get our head around the busyness and the, the, the frantic nature mm. of life, the chaos that often went on at Gallipoli during the campaign. And this is Shrapnel Gully was central to that, and this is a great spot to get an impression of what that would have been like. So just imagine just a constant stream of men going up to the front line, men coming back, wounded men on stretchers, mules carrying loads up, um, shells exploding, shrapnel shells exploding above the gully. It was called Shrapnel Gully for a reason. Shrapnel shells exploding and firing pellets down into the into the valley occasional snipers shot ringing out working parties heading up with sandbags and barbed wire just constant bustle you know ration parties heading up with food just constant yeah, mules, bustle donkeys, noise yeah. horses the whole 
the whole uh, the whole lot going on. Yep. Just a hive of activity all the way up. The whole slope. Even, were... even artillery. There were artillery here, weren't there as well? Yeah, exactly. Had, artillery uh, pieces. Artillery yeah. Um, yeah. The slopes were completely stripped of vegetation, which was used for firewood and because of the digging of trenches and dugouts. So bare slopes and men just coming back up, dusty in summer, freezing cold and snowy in winter. Just a hive of activity going up through here. Again, it's very difficult to stand in this spot and imagine it, but but try in your mind's eye to, to imagine what was going on. And actually, uh, maybe another quote, Pete, about a little bit what was going on here. This is about, even though that these gullies gave a measure of safety, the Turks were always quite ingenious. And especially in the early part of the campaign, the Turks realised that there were men coming up coming up and down these these gullies and, and snipers in particular crept forward to very exposed positions so that they could fire down uh, into the gully. Uh, and so this is what someone said. Um, this is actually quite a way into the campaign. This is not the opening days. This was several months into the campaign. So a party of us volunteered for a sapping job last night. We left camp at 11 and followed the road, which is in the gully bottom, meandering up to the firing line. Across the gully are built sandbag barricades which shield a man just a little from the death traps along the road. We would bend our backs and run to a big barricade, lean against the bags until we panted back our breath, then dive around the corner and rush for the next barricade. The bullets that flew in between each barricade did not lend wings to our feet, for nothing could have made us run faster. A few hundred yards ahead of us and high up is the firing line, perched precariously on a circle of frowning cliffs. The Turks have a special trench up there which commands our road. The trench is filled with expert snipers, unerring shots who have killed God only knows how many of our men when coming along the road. So even that, even my description was a little bit false that I gave of men, you know, sort of chugging their way up the slopes. <laughs> there, were pop, there were sandbag walls to shield them from the snipers and, you know, men running between the posts. It got better as the, as the fighting went on and the Turks were pushed back a little bit. But in the opening days of the campaign, the opening months of the campaign, this was a bit of a death trap. And as he said, God, God only knows how many men were killed by snipers heading up and down um, Shrapnel Valley. I think a lot of movements, a lot of the, the greater movement was done in the dark to give you a, a better chance of surviving. The uh, two of the most famous people obviously killed at Gallipoli were killed by snipers or at least by, by bullets in Shrapnel Valley. That was the aforementioned Simpson with his donkey. He was killed um, only a few weeks into the campaign, um, leading, leading his donkey up through Shrapnel Valley. Uh, and of course, General Bridges, the commander of the Australians who had established the Australian forces, he established the RAF at the start of the war and was the um, first uh, commander of Duntroon in, in Canberra and, and had uh, established the Australian forces. He was hit in the thigh by a sniper um, in, Shrap in uh, Shrapnel Valley, heading up and then um, died on a hospital ship. So uh, he's, and he's the only, uh, the only, until the unknown soldier was sent back to, uh, from Villers Bretonneux in 1993, General Bridges was the only Australian killed in the war who, whose body was returned to Australia. And he's buried at Duntroon in Canberra. So, um, yeah, so a, a very important spot and it demonstrates just the, 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 the risky nature, the amount of fire that went on there and uh, the fact that you're taking your life in your hands every time you went up Shrapnel Gully. And this is a great spot to see it. You can also look dead ahead. You can see on the ridge line ahead of you, that was the front line. And you can see the big Turkish memorial, the big yellow memorial on the skyline marking the front line. Um, and you can also see from here, you can see Quinn's Post. You can see all the key Australian and New Zealand points on the front line just a really great perspective great to come and see the turkish memorial but also great to get this perspective slightly elevated ground to look back up the gully all the way to the front line 
my description would be horrific perspective because it's certainly on my very first visit it's when I realised how terrible the location was when you realise that that is where the Turkish trenches are and you can actually see them or you at least you can see the lips of our trenches and know that the Turks are just beyond them and you realise what a terrible, terrible location it is to try and hang on to. It must have been a constant cause of uh, cause of stress to the men was being able to look up and obviously hear the fire, you know, gunfire all yeah. the time coming from the front line, shouts of men in the front yeah. line, explosions from grenades, artillery going off. You know, it was a constant din. That was Turkish how it was bugles. Exactly, yeah. a, a yeah. constant din yeah. was how it was described. The yeah. noise from the front line. It's not far yeah. away. It's it would be. It wouldn't be a mile, would it, Pete, from the beach no, to the to the no, front line? No. Less, and it would echo. It would echo in these valleys. It would echo as well. Charles Bean said that men walking along the beach used to look up at the front line as a man looked at a haunted house, just thinking that I'll soon yeah. be back up so, there. It, it, you, you couldn't escape from it. That's what we've said before. But just imagine what it was like. You're standing here now, looking up, and less than a mile in the distance, you can see the front line. Well, a gunshot will carry much further than that. And, uh, you would hear yeah. everything that was going on in that front line, the constant din of fighting, knowing that you would soon be back up in, in it again. They're just the constant stress they had to live with. And again, points like this are great places to remember it from. I mean, Pete, you, you, a military man yourself, you spent a lot of time, I know that you weren't in combat, but you've spent a lot of time around veterans, both of current and, and, and previous wars. That must be something that's a recurring theme, is that the stress of even when you're not in battle, knowing that it, you know, tomorrow or you know, in a few, few days' time, you're going to be back amongst it. And I've read accounts from veterans, they talk about that time going back, you know, when it was time to come out of rest and head back into the front yeah. line that it was something they were dreading. You, you must have come across that in your, in, in your experience of talking well, I to think, veterans. I think, Af- I think Afghanistan's a, a very good example of that. There was nowhere safe. So wherever you were, if you, if you were a frontline infantryman or serving in the front line in Afghanistan, then there really is no front line. Your patrol base is just as, uh, as uh, uh, susceptible to, to fire as, uh, as when you're out on, on patrol. So the, the, there was never a period... Um, I mean, uh, flying in, you put your helmet and your flat jacket on as you as you arrived on the plane, as you were uh, arriving in Kandahar, and effectively you never took it off. So, uh, yeah, just just extraordinary. That's an exaggeration, but you'll know what I mean. It's uh, it was it was a difficult place. Well, your son served in Afghanistan, and you obviously know his friends did, as well yeah. who served alongside. Yeah. So, yeah. Pete has a Pete has a, 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 an excellent perspective from both his time. I mean, um, your son, Royal Matthew, a Royal Marine, you know, just like his dad. Yeah, so, yeah, so exactly. A, a shout out to our currently serving members as well, and, and the veterans of Afghanistan yeah. and Iraq, because a lot of this stuff, I think we're talking about to to people like, well, not you, Pete, but to me, it's a lot of this is a hypothetical. Yeah. But there are a lot of people listening to this who who know exactly what we're talking about in terms of the stresses of combat. So, yeah. a shout out to yeah. those people who are who are basically reliving this experience we're describing here as uh, yeah. you know, in, in detail. Yeah. Um, so this is a good spot for that perspective of the front line. You can see up Shrapnel Valley where it takes a big dog leg to the left. It then becomes Monash Valley, named after Colonel Monash, as we said, who commanded the 4th Brigade at Gallipoli. Yep. What we're going to do now, Peter, is we're going to, just before we leave uh, this area, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a, you know, Matt's secret spots here that, that most people don't see, but I always like to take people here. It's the thing about Gallipoli, you always want to know the little secret spots that most people don't go to. So, I mean, I revealed it in my book, so it's not exactly a <laughs> hidden story now. Yeah. But if you carry on past the Turkish Memorial, it's not even a, a track, it's really just a sort of a beaten area through the scrub. But if you follow that area past the Turkish Memorial, so into the scrub, you then come to a trench. There's a, a trench there. Um, on this hill out overlooking the water. And this is one of the original trenches defended by the Turks during the landing. And again, an amazing spot, quite a deep trench as well. 
It's it, And you can actually stand in this spot. You don't get good views anymore because there's trees in the way, but this was a trench dug by the Turks and looking out over the water. Absolutely extraordinary to stand in this spot. And again, think of the men who were here in the early hours of the campaign and the, and the 25th of April. Yeah. Yeah. And it's those little secret spots, those little bits of fragments of the battlefield where you really get a feel of what it was like that are well worth uh, tracking down. So we're going to, after that, we're going to head back down from the trench. We're going to cross the road and we're going to head into Shrapnel Valley Cemetery, one of the most important cemeteries in the Anzac sector. I think the largest cemetery in the Anzac sector. Um, and just really important. It, it really tells, the, it's a, a place you can spend hours in because it tells the whole story of the campaign. There's graves there from the first day. There's graves there from the last day and from pretty much every campaign in between. Just a really extraordinary spot and a beautiful spot as well. It's got a fascinating story as well. I mean, it's a true battlefield cemetery again. It's not a concentration cemetery. This was a cemetery created at the time for soldiers who were being killed in the front line and their bodies brought back or soldiers dying of their wounds in the uh, third field ambulance and, and being brought here to be buried. Uh, men killed by snipers close by, men killed by shellfire close by who are, who are buried here. So it's, it's a fascinating cemetery and... Uh, uh, and, and again, just a, a, an interesting story in the, in the sense that everybody was lost for a period because the markers that had marked all their graves after we'd been evacuated, the Turks are going to use the markers as firewood or they're just going to rot away or get get moved by wild animals. And, and so eventually the it's impossible to say where anybody was. And, uh, and at that period... Um, the Pope intervened. He wanted to know that the graves were being... Of course, it was a big worry to another. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it, in the middle of a, of a war? But it was a massive worry to to governments and to the men themselves of what were their friends that they'd left there, where their graves been looked after. And the Pope got involved, and uh, uh, he requested that an envoy should be sent to see if the graves were being looked after. And, of course, they weren't. And so, so I believe the Turks had to make make up graves all over the site to make it look like the graves were being looked after. But as was discovered in 1918, 1919, 1920, when we came back and started to uh, recover the, the bodies, that nobody was in the right place. And in fact, they ended up having to probe for bodies to find out where the bodies were so that they could then remark them uh, properly. I had the interesting experience uh, several years ago now of, of having a, a friend that came to stay when we ran a bed and breakfast and he, he brought one of the original probes. His grandfather had been in a body recovery unit working on the Western Front, but uh, same idea. And they were using the old cleaning rods from the machine guns that uh, they would extend them. They'd welded another bit onto them to make them a little bit longer. And the, the and then horrifically at the end they put what I could only describe as a as a cheese tester at the end of them, and these things were then dug into the ground and wiggled about when they thought there was a body there, uh, and then pulled out and of, of course the smell that had been held uh, in the, this little cheese tester in the end would tell you whether there was something buried beneath there and so they would know then that there was a body there and mark that body. So fairly horrific story, but. You can see that the ends that they had to go to to try and relocate where where the soldiers had been buried in this cemetery. So I think the story of the cemetery in its own right is just it, it, it's loss and then the way it looks now it's beautiful now flowers and trees and uh, and and rubble walls around it. It's a, it's a, be- a beautiful cemetery. It's got that spectacular Judas tree in it, which which blossoms at Anzac Day every year. Just it's yeah, the, fantastic. It's the springtime yeah. and it comes out in full blossom and this big yeah. purple tree in the middle of the cemetery, just a gorgeous place. But um, the, the thing I love about this cemetery is when, when they, so as you say, they, they accurately remapped it after the, uh, after the war and then um, 
and then uh, recreated the cemetery and built the permanent cemetery. They, they did bring in a few isolated graves, but apart from yeah. that, the cemetery that you're seeing now is the one that was created during the Gallipoli campaign. So again, it, it itself yeah. is a very, very big link. There's 683 graves in the cemetery. And as you'd imagine, because these men were being brought down and buried, it's not a frontline cemetery, um, only 85 are unidentified. So most of the men in this cemetery are identified. Interesting, just in a little aside, Pete, I was looking at a photo of the original cemetery from the 1920s when the permanent headstones had built in been put in place and then i compare that to a modern image of the cemetery the headstones in the 1920s were not as evenly spaced as they are now so over time <laughs> the headstones have actually slightly moved as well uh, as yeah, the as, it, it, as they and i don't it doesn't matter it doesn't you know it doesn't matter that corporal smith is is is, is actually buried a few inches away from his headstone but um, yep. it's interesting how, as time's gone on over the decades, if a headstones need to be taken away and maintained or they need to adjust something in the garden, yep. when they've come back, they've just naturally evenly spaced the headstones to, to, to have some aspect yep. of symmetry. But originally, the headstones were grouped all over the place. They, they haven't moved very much. No. The, the gaps have not changed that much. But they're, they're, it's, the symmetry's a lot neater and a lot more even than it was uh, when it was originally laid out. An, I, th- I think full stop throughout the whole of the uh, of the CWGC cemeteries, you'll find if you start looking at photographs of almost any cemetery taken just after the war or or at a period even perhaps during the war, and then you look at where the graves are now, and you think well, that doesn't quite match at all, and you realise that certainly there there was some lining up of headstones and 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 making the cemeteries look a little bit more uniform. Uh, and uh, I've even noticed on one where the, the, the headstones are definitely at their feet and not at their heads any longer. They were moved so they were at, the, at their feet. And so there's a, a lot of things done, I think, to just to improve the look, uh, but all, also to, you have to think, these, you know, they were looking long-term. These cemeteries have to be maintained, and you know, it's difficult if the graves are absolutely everywhere. I don't, I don't find it a problem. If if uh, if Private Smith isn't directly beneath his, his headstone, I don't think it matters. His, his marker is there because he is there, but whether he's directly beneath it or not, I think is, uh, to a certain extent, irrelevant, really. Um, uh, perhaps we all like to think that, that, that every single soldier is directly below his marker, and and I think the majority are, but, the, but certainly from when we look at the photographs, and unless they started moving people, which we know they didn't, then, then it's a tidying of, of, the, of the headstones, really, that's taking place. To give us a bit of a perspective on what it was like during the campaign, there's a good quote here from, um, from early May from Chaplain Ernest Merrington. And, of course, the chaplains. We, we should do a podcast on military chaplains, Pete, because, gee, oh, they did good work. I've got, oh, I, I find that I'm very interested in military chaplains, and I've got quite a, quite a large number of books about military chaplains, and I think the quote that you're just going to read is, is just a, a fantastic quote. So this was Ernest Merrington, Chaplain Ernest Merrington, who uh, was at the cemetery in early May, and here's how he described the scene that he saw at the cemetery. The bullets often fell thickly around our little parties of workers on this site, which has become forever sacred to Australians and New Zealanders. I was down there by myself at dawn and found the fallen men laid side by side ready for internment. For hours I worked, laying the bodies in the graves with no assistance except for a few men of a fatigue party making a track nearby. I placed the identity discs and personal effects at the head of each grave. I counted 42 Australians and 10 Turks. The sun arose over the eastern hill, revealing the awesome scene around me of death, nobility, valour and sacrifice. That's what he wrote in his diary. A couple of really interesting things, Pete, there that could could otherwise be overlooked. Firstly, the suggestion that um, there were 10 Turks buried in the cemetery. Um, Mm. There's certainly absolutely no Turkish graves whatsoever. So I, you know, and there's no record that Turkish graves were removed from that cemetery. 
Um, so I, I don't actually believe they buried any Turks next to the Australians in that cemetery. The Turks were usually disposed of in mass graves nearby. Uh, but that's an interesting one. But also that um, he placed the uh, the identity discs on the graves. That that shows why, again, why, especially on the Western Front, a little bit at Gallipoli, but especially on the Western Front, why so many men who were originally buried uh, are then missing. I mean, Pete, you know a huge amount about the cemeteries, both the Western Front and Gallipoli. It's a really interesting perspective, isn't it, on how they were created in the first place? It, it is. Uh, and it's an interesting perspective on how I presume that he's putting the uh, the identity disks around the, the rough uh, markers because they haven't yet uh, created any kind of marker with their names on them. So if you haven't got the time to do that, what, what else do you do? Well, the only thing to do is to literally is to nail or hang uh, the identity disk uh, around the, the cross. But you're right, that is there, there by the problem. Uh, because uh, at this period they only have one identity disc. So if he's removed it from the body to hang on the on the cross, then that's it. Once that's gone, then he will n- not be able to be identified because he's he's no longer got a disc on his uh, on his remains. It's one of the reasons why they went over to. Uh, again, we could go on to a, a a whole podcast about identity discs, but it's one of the reasons why they went to a two part disc after the Gallipoli campaign to ensure that the men had two discs on the, uh, uh, with them. It's also interesting, he says he put the personal effects at the head of the grave as well, diaries and yep. cigarette tins yeah. and anything else he found. So those obviously would not have lasted long. Uh, in the, uh, especially, no. I think, again, it reflects that no one knew what was coming. This is in May, this is in early May, so this was yeah. only a couple of weeks after the landing. Um, no one had any idea what was going to happen and how long this campaign was going to go on and the fact that they would still be in the same spot eight months later, that the line would not have moved. Yeah. They all felt that, Obviously, the feeling must have been at that time that, well, we're not going to be here for long. We're going to push inland and capture the whole peninsula. And this will just yeah. simply be an area, a cemetery in the rear area. They had no idea it would stay in the, you know, effectively in the front line for as long as it did. And then they would have to evacuate and abandon it uh, in eight months' yeah. time. Extraordinary. We all did it. Uh, the Germans here in my village where I live in Flair, that there was a big German cemetery that was a permanent German cemetery. So the period when the Germans thought they were here to stay. So they started building a permanent cemetery, walls and flower arbors and bronze memorials and all sorts in, this, in the, the German cemetery here. Now gone, there's nothing. There's nothing left of it. So it, it's gone. And even we, when we didn't expect the Germans to come, come back after the... Uh, uh, pushing them back to the Hindenburg line. We built, started building permanent cemeteries, getting our cemeteries ready, and of course they're all going to be overrun uh, in the period when the Germans, uh, in 1918, in, as the Grey Avalanche headed towards the coast. And so, uh, again, uh, yeah, we all lose cemeteries and lost the information from those cemeteries and had to start working to, to re-evaluate them and to find out who was buried in them. Uh, just an enormous job. I just find it mind-boggling, the amount of effort that's going to go into it. There's um, a number of famous, not famous, a number of well-known, notable people buried in the cemetery, and it's well worth when you go to Shrapnel, Shrapnel Valley Cemetery just spending a bit of time wandering around looking at the headstones because there's uh, quite a remarkable number of people there. But um, probably one of the most, one of the standouts is uh, Major Hugh Quinn, that Quinn's post is named after. He was killed in the Turkish attack on the 29th of May, um, and uh, oh, sorry, on the 19th of May was the uh, was the Great Turkish attack, um, and uh, yeah, so he was. Um, yeah, he was killed in that attack and he's buried there in Shrapnel Valley, but lots of interesting graves. So well worth a good walk around around Shrapnel Valley Cemetery, just just noting men killed in every aspect of the campaign. 
I think that's an interesting one as well, Matt, because it shows how revered senior officers were carried far enough away from the front line to ensure that they got a proper burial because that wouldn't be the case for everybody there um but he i mean you can imagine the effort needed to take it to bring his body down from the front line and bring it all the way back to uh to the sets to the cemetery would have been a, a it's a fair old difficult walk with a with a dead man effectively and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of officers buried here as well. So I think you're right, Pete. That, that was reflected that when yeah. officers were killed, this was one of the main points that they were they were buried. They weren't left up. A lot of the men, as you say, were buried in just rough graves up near the front line. But um, but the officers generally yeah. were, were carried down. You're right as a as a, as a mark of respect. Yeah. Um, one thing you can do when you finish at Shrapnel Valley, if you're feeling fit, there is a track up the hill to Pluggy's Plateau, and you should absolutely do this. It's a it's a side tour in my book, and um, we probably in this podcast don't have time to go into all the detail because there's a lot to see up at Pluggy's Plateau. But absolutely, you should head up there. There's a there's a rough track that heads up for a, maybe a kilometre and a half all the way up to Pluggies Plateau. And Pluggies is one of the main points that overlooks the beach, one of the most important geographic features overlooking Anzac Cove. It's where the men charged up. And as you head up, you get great views over Anzac Cove. You can see the piers heading off. You get wonderful Fantastic. views over the gullies. You can see where Monash's headquarters was in um, in the gullies. And... It's just absolutely. There's, there's artillery positions up there. It's 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 just quite amazing. And then when you get to the top, you get um you get this amazing little cemetery, this tiny little cemetery at the top, which is absolutely extraordinary. Pluggies Plateau Cemetery. It's it's crazy that it's there because after the war, the whole point with the building of permanent cemeteries was let's put them in places where they're easy to get to for gardeners, where they can be maintained, and where visitors can get to them easily. Pluggies Plateau Cemetery is the exact opposite of all of that. It's isolated, hard to get to. I can't imagine the poor gardeners in the 1920s trying to do their work God. to keep the thing maintained. Um, but I love that. I, I I think part of it is it was um, Lieutenant Cyril Hughes from the Light Horse who came back after the campaign. He was in charge of deciding what cemeteries would remain. And I think as a Light Horse man, I just think he liked it. I just think he felt it was appropriate that you have you know 30 or 40 blokes in this little cemetery where they fell from the early days of the campaign, I think he just liked it. And so he said, yep, we're leaving that one in place, boys. Get to work. I can relate to the fact of why he liked it. It is absolutely stunning. One of my little pet hits is when my clients want to talk to me while I'm making that climb to the uh, to the cemetery. Oh, my God, that is a, just a horrendous climb. I have to say, very interesting. I, I had a, a very interesting experience a, a, a few years ago. In fact, probably the last time I was there. And I was just having a quick look in one of the uh, artillery positions that were there, just trying to figure out where the gun would have sat and what its field of fire would have been. And I slipped as I was coming out and nearly nose planted the ground. And as I looked down, I saw something that I recognised immediately from the Western Front. And it was uh, just a little tiny fragment of a soldier's toothbrush sticking out of the ground. I was able to just pull it and pull it out. And I, I pulled out a, a First World War a soldier's toothbrush uh, just, just from uh, one of these artillery positions. Just extraordinary and very moving to find something so personal. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, it's just such a great spot. I mean, I, I do spend hours on Pluggy's Plateau when I go there. It's just such a remarkable spot. And so linked with the landing and the evacuation and every other chapter of the campaign. There are artillery positions up here, which you still find the, the dugouts for field guns. Just a great spot. Yeah. Um, the cemetery itself is the smallest cemetery at Gallipoli, the smallest one on the peninsula. There's only 21 men buried there. Um, and um, 11 of the men that are buried there of the 21 were killed on the opening day, on the 25th of April. Um, just an extraordinary spot. And then if you go to the front of the plateau, you get incredible views out across 
Anzac Cove. And then what you should do is walk past the cemetery to the back of the plateau and then you get incredible views up all the tangle of gullies where the Australians fought, particularly in the opening yep. days. Um, and there's a, there's a sliver of land that links you to the next height. And that was known as the Razor Edge. And uh, it's this sliver of land. And this was one of the problems of the landing is that on the maps, it looked like Pluggy's Plateau was linked to Russell's Top, the high ground, but it wasn't. The only bit of, the only bit of land that connected it was this skinny little little um little shelf called the razor's edge and some of the brave aussies who landed on the first day actually did run across it uh, but uh, but uh, most people didn't uh, didn't make the uh, make the crossing and uh, you can do it today but i wouldn't recommend it it's a pretty torturous uh, journey up to russell's top so i'd recommend you don't do it um but just outstanding views from pluggy's plateau yeah yeah absolutely really great spot you can see across the sphinx as well uh, opposite it's just a an extraordinary spot we're gonna head back down now to shrapnel valley cemetery uh, and then we're going to uh, keep walking down the road, and we're going to turn right to Beach Cemetery, one of the last stops on our on our journey. We're going to go to Beach Cemetery, um, gorgeous place. Beach Cemetery is on the spit of land known as Hell Spit to the Anzacs, again reflecting the nature of the fire, particularly from the south. There was a the, the big promontory to the south is called Garba Tepe, and on Garba Tepe were the, the gun or guns known as Beachy Bill, which we mentioned in the last last podcast, and they blasted away at this southern sector of the um, of Anzac Cove, and so this spit of land was known as hell spit in spite of its exposure Pete, they still built a cemetery on it quite remarkable because the hospital was next yeah. to it yeah I, I think this was the, the an immediate uh, burial place so these were guys uh, killed in the uh, or the initial people buried here in the first few days of the landing before they realized that there was a much better and sheltered place to uh, to bury uh, soldiers uh, uh, in Shrapnel Valley, so uh, but it's just just ama- amazing that you would continue to use it because it was continued. They used it throughout the whole of the uh, the campaign. There's 391 uh, graves be- uh, buried here, and I have to say, very difficult to say which is your my favourite cemetery in the Anzac sector. But this one again is is beautiful because it's just right on the beach. It's lots of trees. Tends to be a little bit cool there. You get the sea breeze occasionally. Uh, and you have to say, sadly, if, if you have to had to have died and be buried somewhere on the uh, uh, during this campaign, then this would would be where I would want to lie. I think it's uh, it's a, be- a beautiful place. It's an extraordinary cemetery, just gorgeous. And erosion has it, it used to be there used to be a beach in front of it, but erosion has gotten rid of that beach now. So now the cemetery literally tumbles down into the ocean. Mm. So it's this beautiful. It it's very sloped, heads down, headstones, beautiful gardens, nice trees, and then just beautiful blue water. It's an absolutely extraordinary spot. And again, lots of people say this is their favourite cemetery at Gallipoli. I probably prefer Arabernu. There's something about Arabernu that I prefer at the northern end, but this yeah. is a it is a beautiful cemetery. And it's got some of the most important graves at Gallipoli. Let's talk about him. Simpson, the man in the the man with the donkey. John Simpson is buried here. We won't get too bogged down. And again, perhaps another podcast will talk all about him. But um, the most fascinating yeah. thing, the most famous Australian to serve at Gallipoli. And what's the most important thing about him when we say that, Pete? He's not Australian. <laughs> South Shields. He was from way up in the north. He was a Geordie. Yeah. He was a little bit, a little bit further north than myself. I'm from uh, Hull, east coast as well, east coast of Britain, and uh, he came from a little bit further up the coast. It was funny. I saw some researchers who were looking into, you know, the myth of Simpson and whether he was as famous at the time as we made him later on, and they came to the conclusion that he's barely mentioned in diaries and personal accounts. And if he was such mm. a big deal, more men would have mentioned him but then they noticed that they'd made a fate a fateful error no one referred to him as simpson he had such a broad northern english accent that the australians called him scotty it was his nickname because they thought he was scottish when they heard him talk 
And so his nickname was Scotty. And so once they came across this, they started looking and there were references everywhere to him in diaries and letters. And when he was killed only a few weeks into the campaign, we, we forget how long he, he was killed uh, very early in the campaign. Um, and so it's, you know, it's quite extraordinary that so many men remembered him. And so he's, his fame was established at Gallipoli. Um, he was even mentioned in the official history uh, of the campaign. So his fame was... I think it's just one of those things. We just need... Um, we need heroes. We need people in the midst of all the hell. We need people doing good things. And the man with a donkey is um, you know, rescuing wounded is, uh, is, a, is a perfect example of that. So the most popular grave visited in the Anzac sector is uh, Simpson, the man with a donkey. Oh, it was a good news story in a way, wasn't it? Because it's sad, really, because of course he's he's killed, but it, it's seen as a as a good news story. You know, this this brave chap going up and down the gullies, bringing bringing back the wounded, um, and and I think even the donkey has a slight religious overturns as well, doesn't it? So it, it's it, it's the, the the donkey and, uh, and 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 I just think the 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 whole the whole story had that nice feel to it of a in 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 a. A period of time when there were not particularly very many good stories that you could tell. So I think it it was seen as a, a human story in in a in a period of of massive suffering for a lot of the men that were there. It also was a, it was a good not a, I won't say a propaganda piece, it, but it was a good news story in so far as yeah. the campaign was not going well, and rather than celebrate yeah. great military victories, what we started to celebrate was the grit and determination yeah. of the men to hang on. And so Simpson was pretty representative of that men doing good yeah. things in tough conditions so yeah he's well deserved his, his fame is, is well deserved but remember that he wasn't Australian because he's a yeah. great and he wasn't the only one I think that's exactly. the other thing isn't it I, I, there were an awful lot of other men doing exactly the same the, the same task and I think there's been some debate about the only supposed picture that we have of him is, is now I think presumed to be a New Zealander and, and not Simpson at all um, but it, it doesn't really matter it, you know, whether it was a New Zealander or Simpson they're doing the same job and it was a tough job Peter Hart and Gary Bain on our other on our sister podcast, uh, Pete and Gary's Military History, did a whole episode about Simpson and the other stretcher bearers using donkeys at Gallipoli. So certainly go and listen to that. Um, it was a you know it's a fascinating story and one of the one of the key elements we hang on to about the Gallipoli campaign. But there's other interesting people buried in Beach Cemetery as well. Pete, one of the ones that I like the best is Captain Edward Badge um, because he'd been on Douglas Mawson's Ant- um, Antarctic expedition in in the earlier part of the decade, and this is quite extraordinary. These men that went off and explore the arctic and it, it touches with one of the blokes that you uh you know the the antarctic explorer that you mentioned from the noir yeah. episode a few weeks yeah, ago russell blake yeah russell blake also on the same expedition um and also will lose his life during the war in in this case russell blake lost his life on the 3rd of october in 1918 uh, and beige will lose his life on the 7th of may in 1915 beige being the astronomer and blake being the cartographer uh, and of course, we have Frank Haley, the uh, Australian official photographer, was also on the same expedition as well. So uh, it's a fascinating expedition. And uh, I, I, having realised that Beige was here and is buried in this cemetery, I've decided I'm going to do a little bit more work on that uh, on that that expedition, Mawson's Antarctic expedition, 1911-14, and see who else was on there because it's obviously full of very interesting characters. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's, it just shows these these men were you know <laughs> adventurers and heroes and. Yeah. Uh, so they were explorers, and they went off and fought in a war. It it, it makes perfect sense. But some other, um, some other really and important officers buried here. So there's um, George Braund is really important. He was the commander of the second battalion, uh, very well liked by his men. He led very um, 
very successfully during the opening days. Braun's Hill, which leads, uh, you know, is one of the main hills at Gallipoli, is named after him. Uh, but on the 4th of May, he um, was challenged by an Australian sentry and he was slightly mm-hmm. deaf, didn't hear the challenge, and the sentry shot him dead. So killed by an Australian as he entered the lines, which was a tragedy. So the 2nd Battalion lost its charismatic commander. And also, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Lancelot Clark, Boer War veteran, commander of the 12th Battalion, and uh, he scaled, was 57 years old at the time, and the day of the landing, he scaled up the side of the Sphinx, which is like ground that yeah, I don't think anyone attempted to, to climb ever again, and no. I would never, it's, it's, it's a sheer cliff. So he, uh, he scaled up there, and he led his men forward all the way to the ground that became the neck on the, on the first day. Um, and uh, he was uh, you know, calling out to his men and yelling them to come on on the day of the landing, and a uh, shot rang out, and he was killed. Uh, and uh, he's, he's buried in Beach Cemetery. So yeah, there, there, and there's more as well. There's other um, other important offices there. There's a there's some of uh, some really extraordinary graves in Beach Cemetery. Really worth spending some time just exploring that area. What was the one yeah. I'm I'm yeah. remembering? I'm going to look back to my notes. That was it. The Salon Planters Rifles. Ah, uh, it was the, indeed. Yeah, the, they were um, Birdwood's personal uh, personal guard at Gallipoli. It's personal bodyguard, Salon Planters Rifle Corps. Yeah, uh, not enough of them to form a, any kind of sensible unit, and, and Birdwood needed a, a bodyguard, so they volunteered or were picked. I'm never quite sure which, but they became uh, his his personal uh, uh, bodyguard and and retinue, I suppose, that that served uh, with him on the peninsula. So there's three of that uh, that uh, that guard are buried in the in the cemetery. Obviously, yeah. they were unfortunate, didn't uh, didn't survive. But, um, I'm going yeah. to go on, off on, on one of my tangents, if I may briefly. Please do, please many, do. Many years ago in an auction in the UK, um, I always rubbish through boxes to have a look inside old boxes to see what I could find. And there were three boxes piled on top of each other. And I went to the bottom box and I just lifted the lid, having moved the boxes on top of it, and then shut the lid again very quickly. Because what I could glimpse inside was a, a tropical helmet and a, a uniform and all of his accoutrements to a, a First World War officer. So I piled the other boxes on top and then bought all three boxes, which were supposed to be empty. Um, and uh, it turned out that the uniform in the bottom box was of the Salon Planters Rifle Corps of the First World War period. So it was a complete uniform of a soldier that had uh, served on the peninsula. Absolutely brilliant. That's a great story. Indeed, I've sold it, sadly. I sold it some years ago and I wish I hadn't now. <laughs> you should, yeah, I was about to say, Pete's actually wearing it as he uh, does this podcast. <laughs> I look at him on the video yeah. screen. But, uh, no, that would have been great. But, uh, I would have loved to see you sitting up there in your pith helmet, Pete. That would have been... Ah, I can do that. I've got others just behind <laughs> me. I've got others. Well, we're going to farewell the Salon Planters Rifles and all the other men in Beach Cemetery. We're going to head back to the road and then this is the last stop on our tour. We're going to take a right. We're going to walk down a little bit further until we come to the next big, sweeping, exposed stretch of sand, which is Brighton Beach, which stretches all the way from Hellspit all the way down to Garba Tepe. It didn't feature particularly prominently in the campaign, except for the concept that most of the men were supposed to land here. But it's still a good place to go because there's a couple of fascinating stories to do with Brighton Beach and uh, the Gallipoli campaign. So what we should remember is it was only the very northern end of the beach that was actually in Anzac hands. The rest of the beach was uh, was unoccupied uh, and the Turks overlooked it. So it was actually a pretty dangerous stretch. Um, we've been there. It's a good spot for a swim in the summer. Uh, there, there's not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't actually play that huge a role in the uh, in the campaign, particularly the landings. Yep, I've had a swim there. Um, it's been one of my kind of little sidelines when we visit the battlefields is to have a swim on every every beach. I've done uh, most of the Normandy landing beaches, so uh, very necessary to have a swim on the on the beaches at Gallipoli as well. 
as did literally tens of thousands of Aussies and New Zealanders during the campaign. The little corner of Brighton Beach was always a good swimming spot. And actually, it reminds me of probably the most famous story to do with Brighton Beach, which occurred um, after the May Turkish offensives when the Turks launched a huge attack to try and push the Allies into the sea and suffered probably 10,000 casualties. And no man's land was choked with bodies and it was just a, a ghastly sight. And so the Turks sent down an envoy under a white flag to negotiate a, a ceasefire so they could bury the troops. And I just this is one of my favourite stories of the of the Gallipoli campaign. So they sent down a, an officer, and uh, the the Anzacs promptly blindfolded him, uh, and he came. He walked along Brighton Beach. They blindfolded him so that he could come in and negotiate the truce without uh, without seeing the Anzac you know, defences. Um, but there was a barbed wire entanglement which stretched down across the across Brighton Beach and into the water. And trying to get a blindfolded man across barbed wire entanglement was a difficult challenge. They couldn't get him to do it. Charles Bean was there, the official historian, and he described it was like one of those games where you tell someone that they're stepping, they blindfold them, and tell them they're stepping over an imaginary, an imaginary obstacle that try to direct him to lift his legs at the right time. Anyway, it wasn't working at all. They couldn't get him through the barbed wire, and then someone had a brainwave. There were a couple of Aussies swimming naked, stark naked in the water nearby. So they got a stretcher. They sat the Turk on the stretcher. Then the two naked Aussies carried the Turk on the stretcher down into the water and around the end of the barbed wire entanglement. Charles Bean actually has a photo of this moment of the two naked Aussies carrying the Turkish envoy who was sitting on a stretcher. So quite a funny one. But then afterwards, during the actual truce itself, again, another one of my favourite anecdotes about Gallipoli, the, the Turkish officers had come down, the Anzac officers were all there, British officers, and they were all discussing this truce very formally and no doubt trying to preserve the dignity of their nation. And then all of a sudden, the flap on the tent flew open and this head appeared as an Aussie stuck his head in and said, hey, did one of you muckers pinch my kettle? <laughs> in the middle of the, the truce conference. So I just love that. It's just the... It's just that sums to me. To me, that sums up the Gallipoli campaign is the officers trying to do their best to, to, uh, to to forge some some sense of of order in the middle of this chaos, and uh, and the troops doing their best to muck that up at every opportunity. It's a really good spot. Brighton Beach is a good spot to end the walk, and and you, you look down south towards the the Turkish defences at Garba Tepe and and the, all the land that wasn't occupied by the Anzacs, and it's a it's a good spot to finish the tour, and. That really brings us to an end, Pete. It's, it's, it's an essential walk, isn't it? I mean, it's the iconic walk, at least in the Anzac sector. Uh, even if you're not an Australian or a New Zealander, to go down and stroll along those beaches and, and visit those sites, is, it's, it's just absolutely essential. An incredible walk. Uh, it's fantastic. And uh, the views, if you just climb up uh, the bluffs a little bit uh, to the ridges, just fantastic. Back down onto the beaches. And uh, yeah, and, and you will find it for anybody that's not been before, you'll find it extraordinary because it will not feel as you think it's going to feel. And certainly that was my uh, my experience on my first visit. Wonderful. Well, Pete, thank you for, for joining us once again. It's been a wonderful walk and uh, look forward to the next one. Yep, yep, can't wait. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.